I was a boy in 1979 when Disney released a movie. It was a very un-Disney-like movie. The name of the movie was called The Black Hole. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? Yeah. I really, really wanted to see it in the theater, but that didn't happen. Uh, So we had to wait until years later. This thing called Cable came out, and we had the Disney Channel, and I saw it then. The Black Hole... uh, you know, if you ever know, if you're ever in a, like a carpentry shop or a wood shop, um, as someone's building a, a table, a beautiful chestnut table or a, a grandfather clock or whatever, everything they don't use just kind of falls to the floor, scrap, sawdust, and pieces of scrap wood. The black hole was like the sawdust left over after Star Wars and Star Trek. <laughs> It was like the kind of movie you would assemble if you swept all the junk together and then made a movie about it. It was, uh, you could tell it was the costumes that didn't make the cut in a real movie. You know, it was the, surprisingly, you might find, it was the 21st highest grossing film of 1979, uh, which isn't saying much. But in, in the black hole, the way they depicted the black hole was it was like a funnel in space. If you remember right, it was, there were, you would fly along. Somehow they had to present in space a plane, and so they kind of put this green graph, and the spaceship was going to come and then go down into a funnel of space, and then neat things were going to happen or, or mysterious things would happen. That's how the black hole was described. And it started this kind of, uh, I guess it didn't start, it just captured this mythos of if anything in space is menacing, it's a black hole. There's kind of a menacing nature of a black hole. Really, nothing in space cares about us. It's inanimate. They're just things. But for for us, a black hole still kind of have a, a gobble us up kind of nature to them. But they're really not like funnels in space. I guess that's the point. A black hole is, in fact, and in, in for the, if you're a scientific, relax for a second, okay? <laughs> this is basically, I don't want anybody to come up after me at the service. This is basically what a black hole is. A black hole, in many cases, is a failed star, a star that has fallen in on itself, that its, its ignition fuel, its fuel to kind of continue has it no longer is sufficient to hold its weight. And so what ends up happening is the star rushes back in on itself. And as it's, as it's rushing back in on itself, it accelerates upon itself, exceedingly so, so that all the mass of the entire star might be encapsulated in something not much larger than an atom. Same mass in the space of an atom. That's what a black hole is. And because of that, it, the, the, there is... A place, if you're approaching a black hole, there is a place that is almost a point of no return, even for light, that in order for something to escape the gravitational pull at some point in a black hole, it would have to be exceeding the speed of light, which is why it is in fact black, is because even light itself is trapped inside um, of this event horizon. See, I know my stuff. Um, It's even encapsulated there. And so that when you look out in space, you see... What you see is you, we call it a black hole. What we see is the space of nothingness, the inescapable uh, spherical space where a black hole is living. A black hole is oppressive, but it's nothing. It's 
oppressive and nothing in a lot of ways. It's a dot. A lot of heaviness. There's no light. And this is how I would describe depression. It's oppressive nothingness. It's when a person is turned in upon themselves. It's when they collapse in upon themselves and their existence is dense and yet their existence is nothing. And there's an absence of light. You know, the Lord says, God is light and in him there is no darkness. So if you can appreciate for that for many people who are in severe depression, they are in a place where light is inescapable. They, there is no light. That is um, how you might think of depression. It's a place that is free from hope. Someone who is depressed feels, in fact, like they are a space. Not like they're somebody, but they are just an empty space. They're hopeless. Here's some ways that people have described their own depression. One person described it as malignant sadness. Another person said, I feel as though I died a few weeks ago and my body has not found out yet. Someone was asked to describe, like, look into yourself and tell me who you are in this depressed place. And their answer was, I am no one. I am a black hole. An author, uh, her name is Elizabeth Wurzel. She wrote a book called Prozac Nation. She says this depression involves a complete absence, absence of effect, absence of feeling, absence of response, absence of interest. The pain you feel in the course of major clinical depression is an attempt on nature's part to fill up the empty space. But for all intents and purposes, the deeply depressed are just the walking, waking dead. There is nothing I hate more than nothing. C.S. Lewis said that. I could weep by hours like a child and yet know, not know what I wept for. That's Charles Spurgeon. I am now a man of despair, rejected, abandoned, shut up in this iron cage from which there is no escape. That's John Bunyan. My bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. That is the psalmist, David. Now, depression, like many things, is unique. So, I'm giving this image. I know, especially today, if, I'm, if you're here, and depression is the thing that you battle, I know I'm not describing your depression. I, I know you may not be able to describe your depression. I'm just trying to get us closer to the idea, and especially, I hope, is to make a church a little more compassionate for the person who is experiencing depression. This is not just, they're not just sad. They are a dot of intense nothing. And there is no light. When they're at a dark place, it can be, be that way. They can feel hopeless. And this morning, I hope, that we can shed some light on this darkness and we can say there is hope even for you who suffer from depression. Let's pray real quick. Lord, we, uh, this is heavy, uh, a heavy topic. I pray you soften all of our spirits. Father, I pray special care on those 
uh, who have come so close to these dark places and have been there. And um, I, I know, Father, have asked more questions than I have or have sought you in deep ways and at times not been able to find you. Lord, I pray that you would speak truth into their hearts and that you would work from what is said here, Lord, and as a starting point and then so deeper truths in their spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, depression is experienced on a spectrum. So if we say depression, if someone's depressed, that we're really not saying all that much yet. We need to begin to define their specific experience. At the lightest side of the spectrum, there are things you would call situational depression, circumstantial depression. And those things are caused, uh, can be caused or triggered by uh, the loss of a loved one, um, you know, if uh, the death of a family member, the loss of a job, where you can kind of attach a situation or circumstance to that event. That is the, the, the light side. It's called systemic depression or circumstantial depression. It's over there. Then on the other side of the spectrum, so then you begin to move. We begin to move. And I think most of us can identify with that side, by the way. Right? Even if you've never been depressed, you can understand how if you lost your spouse or a child, how that might for a period throw you into mourning. And we've heard stories of someone who's lost a child, and for a year they're kind of gone. And then they show back up again. And that's kind of connected to that idea, though a year would be farther down the spectrum. Now, as you move down the spectrum, you begin to head towards the side of major depression disorder, or what we commonly call clinical depression. It's a place where chemical imbalance begins to be more of the language used that enters in in that area more. Um, and, and people who deal with depression fall somewhere in all of that. So if you're clinically depressed, there's a good chance you're not here this morning if you're currently clinically depressed. Um, uh, because some of those, it, it may be to the point where they can't get out of bed at times, that sort of thing. But again, it, li- it lives on a spectrum. And, um, and the goal today is not to define um, where you are or not to define how you got there, but to kind of meet us where we are and, and realize that the basic elements of depression are connected to normal humanness. If it is on a spectrum where there's these severe cases, but if we come and we come lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter, we realize that it's, it's connected to ideas like grief, mourning, uh, failed expectations, uh, where our, our hopes are proven wrong. And if that is the basic elements from which all depression is built, it's simply increasing degrees, then we can minister to depression, whether it's a chemical imbalance or what the reason, we can still minister to depression by ministering to these basic elements of humanness, which is what we're going to try to do this morning. We're going to try to grab onto the elements of humanness and our faith and minister to those and then hope that those come alongside of people amidst depression while they're there. And in order to do that, I have to define uh, this word called hope. I'm going to say it a lot today, and I feel like it needs to be, it needs to be defined. We often t- find the word hope connected in a in a little triplet, faith, hope, love. It's not just in 1 Corinthians. It shows up that way in a number of Paul's letters. Faith, hope, love. Faith, hope, love. And if we want to understand their relationship 
um, together, and this is this has been very helpful for me, so I'm just going to share it with you. Uh, faith is the kind of trust that we express in something or someone. That's what faith is. So we place our faith in something. We're investing trust, a level of trust, in something. Hope is the internal response that we gain from that. I place my faith in something, and it creates a sense of hope inside me. Anything. Any kind of faith you place in any kind of thing or any kind of person will generate and foster and bear fruit of some kind of measure of hope inside of us. I'm, people believe in Santa Claus. They have a corresponding hope on Christmas morning. And then love, if you think so, we place faith in something, it responds in us in hope, and then love is the expression that comes out of us based upon that, the thing that we've placed our trust in. That's how they're related. Faith is invested, hope is fostered, results in love. If you have faith in money, you place faith in money, your hope is in in money, and your love is then in money. That's how it works. It works that way. The Lord simply says, apply that to me. And so as we deal with hope, we need to realize that it is the internal personal response to things in which we place our faith. We alter our faith, we alter hope. If we lose faith, we lose hope. I think that is helpful, and I think it's central to, well, to the issues of uh, severe grief and depression. And so as we kind of walk through this morning, um, I don't know who I'm preaching to. Really. If you're here, you're being preached to. I think God's word is meaningful at every place, even at our darkest hour. And the goal is not necessarily the restor- your restoration in a dark place, but rather, so we're not dealing with how to fix depression this morning. And I'm sorry to disappoint you if that's the case. This is not a how to not be depressed message. I don't know if that can be faithfully preached. This is a when depressed, to whom do you turn message. So in our darkness, to whom do we turn and where do we find hope in this dark place? That's, that's the message. Very practically speaking, I hope at the very least this may give some of you a pause before you uh, divert to medication. Pause. I am not at all saying that medication doesn't have a role. I, in fact, I think it does uh, in the cases of depression. But just a thoughtful pause as to what, in fact, are you trying to medicate? Are you trying to medicate a pain? Or are you trying to deal with a root issue? And those, we're going to work through that. And now I'll say this, last, my last kind of warning before we, we get to some of the, the substance of the message very practically, if you're here this morning and you deal with depression and you walk out convicted, do not go home and flush your medication down the toilet. Okay? Talk to your doctor. Because these things need to be slowly and carefully walked into and carefully walked out of. So I'm not at all trying to create, I want to say this very emphatically, I'm not at all trying to create a stigma about medication. Um, I'm trying to create spiritual thinking people. And those are two different things. Okay. If we accept that depression is linked to the basic elements of humanness, then we know that these are the kinds of causes that send people into depression. Sadness, grief, a feeling of meaningless or loneliness, worry, 
self-absorption. Radical change can send somebody into depression. Purposeless pain. If you're experiencing pain and you can find, attach no purpose to it, that can effectively send somebody towards depression. Just biological chemistry can send somebody towards depression. These, these causes, and there's many others, these, they become depressive when their weight, again, when the weight of the issue becomes more than what the star can hold. And that's when they begin, we begin to collapse in on ourselves. Is when the weights of these issues just becomes more than what you're accustomed to taking care of or what, you're cap- what you think you're capable of taking care of, what you, what you can bear. When that weight is greater, you begin to collapse in on yourself. And that is kind of what, whatever the cause is, it's that weight that makes, makes someone turn in on themselves. And this notion of us turning in on ourselves is an important note. We are like a black hole in depression. We are self, severely self-focused. And I think the Lord has a word for that. Like, this morning, I'm not at all going to condemn somebody who falls into depression. I'm not going to say you ought not to be depressed or just get up and get over it. That's not at all what I'm saying. But the nature of a human being severely self-obsessed is not godly. And God speaks to that. And if we can hear about our sinfulness in healthy times, I'm, I'm, I'm apologizing to the depressed person here. If you can hear about your sinfulness in healthy times, you also have to try to hear about sinfulness in unhealthy times. And so we're going to talk about this. The first idea I want us to deal with is the relationship between suffering and hope. And we've been following a pattern through the sermon series. The pattern is, what does God's word say? How does the Holy Spirit minister? And how does the church respond? That's the pattern we've been following. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to do it twice this morning. The first with hope and the second with our emotions. But how does suffering and hope, how do they connect? That's the first idea. And we'll, we'll say this, this, number one, with this relationship of suffering related to hopelessness is that suffering does not imply that God has failed or that he's ignorant of our situation. The fact that there's suffering doesn't mean that God has made a mistake or that God's not there. There is no such thing, categorically in the universe, there is no such thing as meaningless pain. All pain... God knows about and must have some purpose. He must, if we're going to call him God, let's shift the problem at least. Instead of saying God doesn't know, now say God knows and has purpose. I'm not saying it makes us feel better necessarily, but he knows and there's purpose. The life of Job forces us to deal with this. To people who have not dealt with pain, Job is a frustrating book. How could God do that? Bill Berger used to be among us. He's with the Lord now. I remember struggling with Bill's life. He was a young man who was passing of cancer and had had a series of events in his life that anybody here who knew him would have thought of Job. And I remember saying to him, how do you do it? I was at a place of pastoral impasse where I was going to the sick saying, explain this to me. And he said, I just find peace. I read Job and I find peace. 
God has no meaningless pain. Philippians 3.10 says this, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying that I desire to experience the sufferings like Christ did so that I can more fully know him. There's a sense that Paul knows intuitively that suffering has purpose. Now, we look at the individual suffering, and we say, what is the individual purpose of this suffering? Paul's saying suffering has purpose. When we suffer, we come closer to the crucified Christ. Romans, Paul says in Romans it this way. He says, not only so, but we also, here's a difficult phrase, rejoice in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Paul says we should rejoice in suffering because when we suffer and persevere, it produces character and that character produces hope. In fact, Paul is saying that the byproduct of persevering through suffering is hope, which is the opposite of people who struggle with depression. When they are in a depressive state, they lose hope. That's one of the first things that flies out the window. It's a sense of hopelessness amidst their depression. Yet Paul says, when we persevere through difficulty and suffering, we gain hope. There's purpose in suffering. As a church, it is wrong for us, for me or for you, to preach that suffering is judgment or problematic to the Christian life. If we experience the life of Christ in suffering, it is not problematic. If it bears through perseverance character and through character hope, it is not problematic. It hurts, but it's not problematic. It's not meaningless. But here's, here's the reality is our hope, our hope, these little hopes, they feed and they grow in the nearest green pastures of our life. So we don't just have hope. There's not one hope that you have. What you actually have, you have a well-diversified portfolio of hope. That's what you have. Is we invest tiny pieces of trust all over the place. You have a little bit of trust placed in your spouse or your, or your family. You have a little bit of trust placed in your job and a little bit of trust placed in your health and a little bit of trust placed in your friends and so on and so forth and your abilities and your talents. And all of these little pieces of trust bear internally a response of hope. We have all these natural, just naturally growing sources of hope that are growing all over the place. And we kind of collectively think when we have hope in this life, We'd like to say it's based on God, but it isn't just based on God. It's based on the sum total of kind of this field of hope that we've cultivated. We have hope feeding in all these different little earthly fields. Well, when those, when those disappear, what happens? So much of our hope is circumstantial. It's connected to somebody. When, when our hope, our, when our trust is in a spouse 
and that, that trust is broken, either through the death or infidelity of the spouse, then the source of hope that we enjoyed is now gone. When our hope is in our health, our trust is in our health, we're trusting on our talent, and we lose our talent. You ever seen an athlete who lose, breaks a leg? What happens? He plunges into depression. Why? Because he is hopeless. Why? Because his hope was built on a circumstance. Have you ever seen the person whose wife dies and three months later he passes? How does that happen? They're not, they're not chemically linked. What's happened is over 56 years of marriage, there's such a strong bridge of trust that connects the two that there's a, bro- there's a huge response of hope in the person's life. And when one is gone, when the one leaves and the other one loses a degree of hope, unless our hope is secured in nothing less than something that is imperishable. The reality is, is we think we have imperishing hope. The reality is we have an ocean of hope of all sorts of kind of things, and we kind of tag it with the Lord at the end of the day. But it's very circumstantial. This is, in fact, why I think Paul says, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, because when we suffer... What ends up happening is we look to the things that once gave us hope and they fail to give us hope. And so we look to other things and other things. And as we're persevering through this, the character that builds is us coming to the realization that nothing truly instills hope in us but Jesus Christ. There's nothing that offers imperishing hope. There's nothing that in a dark place while you're suffering that you can hold on to that will not let go of you but the cross of Jesus Christ. When that is our only hope, that's when we've, that's why we celebrate. That's why Paul celebrates suffering is because he says, suffering refines my life so that I solely hope in Jesus Christ. We see this. Psalm 119 says this. This is where God, good hope is fixed in the promise of Christ. Psalm 119 says this. Remember your word to your servant for you have given me hope. My comfort in, suffer, in my suffering is this. Your promise is, preserves my life. Isaiah 40, we read this morning, says this, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting God. You see what the writer's doing? He is imperishable and reliable. The creator of the ends of the earth, he will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagle. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Very often in depression, people feel like God is distant, and then therefore they are hopeless. I want to I offer to you who go there, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe what happens in depression is you become hopeless and then God feels distant. And maybe that happens because your hope is connected to things that are circumstantial and that truly don't offer lasting hope. There's a great line in Hosea. It's just one line that says this. It says, They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but they wail, wail upon their beds. 
It's this idea of God looking down on people who are in deep mourning and grief. They're deep mourning and grief, but they're not crying out to the Lord because they've, they feel distant from God, so they're just carrying their grief by themselves. And, and what I might suggest this morning as a way of, of understanding how does hopelessness show up in the life of a Christian who is depressed is maybe your hope is, is not as narrowly focused on the Lord as it could be. And this is where the ministry of the Holy Spirit comes in. If you say to me, so, word, spirit, if you're going to say to me, well, how, how, John, how then do I have this kind of hope? I'm a person who every spring I dip. I'm a person who, you know, I'm up and I'm down and I'm up and I'm down. So the one thing I know is I'm going to be back there. How do I... How do I deal with this? This is, this is what I might recommend. Is that you become a liturgical Christian. Um, not, not like you go back to your high church. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if you've ever been in a, a liturgical service, you could walk into a liturgical service and not even believe in God. And if you said what you were told to say, you would glorify the Lord. Everything you'd say would be true. The Lord be with you and also with you. We give thanks always and everywhere. All the liturgy that's assigned, the liturgy is, is the attempt of liturgy is to, is, is to make people through rote habit and through memorization and through a pattern express faithful ideas and if you are the kind of person who dips away from God, and in your dip you, you, you fall away from the desire to pray and the desire to know and the desire to remind yourself, I would say in your bright days, you have to become, you have to become a severely liturgical Christian. I'm diagnosing you. You have a severe hope deficiency. And this is the medication. Six times a day, you need to be speaking the word of God. Speaking it. You need to be in the Psalms. The Psalms express the heart of a depressed person. Psalm 88 ends, and darkness is my only friend. There's, there's hardly a good thing in the 88th Psalm. And there's Psalms like that, 13, 16, 18. You go on and on and on on Psalms that struggle with the Lord on why is this happening to me? You, you need to have those memorized. Memorized. You need to have such a habit pattern of liturgy before the Lord. This is what I'm saying. I'm saying, you're not, in your good days, you're not serious about your deficiency in hope. You're not serious about what you want to bring into the black unless you're doing this sort of thing, unless you say, I'm good today, and so while I'm here today, I'm going to build up for myself a liturgical habit of talking to God. When I roll out of my bed, my right hand grabs my Bible on the way out, and I'm on my knees. That's how every day starts. You want to be like an old horse on an old, carrying the milk carton around town. You want to be in such a deep divot of the Lord that says, this is how I live my life. So that when the darkness comes, you have in your mind the Psalms of God. You have a severe hope deficiency. And the, a liturgy, a liturgical life, a life of road habit pattern, that needs to become your prosthetic you need to see yourself as walking around with a missing spiritual limb. 
And you need, you need to apply a prosthetic. You need to say, I need, I need to be artificially committed to something because I'm starting at a different place. We don't say, you know, if someone's a quadriplegic, we don't say, well, your life isn't a value anymore. We don't blame them for their sickness, but we say, now we have to teach this person how to communicate. We have, you, you have to begin to see yourself that way. This is the warning. Very often, with, uh, especially among bipolar, you dip, you're on medi- you deal with medication, you come out, and then very often, in, in the, even my experience, what happens is you hit the high, and you say, I don't need my medication anymore. And you come off it. I haven't seen this, you know, I've only been a pastor a short time. I've seen this many times of the dip, the surface, and now that I'm fine, this perspective, now that I'm fine, I don't need my medication. That is a, that's a prideful attitude that needs to be dealt with. But we deal that way spiritually as well. You come out, you come out of a dark place, you come into the light and you say, now that I'm fine, I'm saying, now that you're fine, you need to be just as liturgical because you're on the top of a hill with a valley on the other side. There's a need for some humility among people when they hit their high points to know that there's another valley coming for the church. How does the church minister in this area? The first thing I would say is, and when I say church, I mean people outside of the individual. So family, friends, small group, congregation, on the way out. You need to recognize that when they talk to God, even a little bit, it is a heroic act. When someone who's experiencing depression prays, they're doing something more than you've done all week. And I think God sees that, and you need to see it. You need to see that they, they're praying into a black chasm to a God that they're not even sure is there. And the church should see that. You around them should see that for what it is. And I'll say this. Uh, I've been wondering, why does, God, why does God bring this into the church? Like, it makes sense to me that people who don't know God experience depression because they don't know God. But why do people who I know and love, who I know love God, why are they still experiencing it? And maybe this is it. For Maybe there's a grand purpose, and this is just me thinking, but maybe the grand purpose is so the church, church has within its own people insight into what truly our lives look like without Christ. Do you realize all the people in the world that are walking around with hope, it is circumstantial hope that is not really present. The reality is, is that the, the world's response should actually be vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity. It is all meaningless. If they have the true eyes to see it, and it's almost as though depression within the church is like a stained glass window saying, this is what hell looks like. Trust in God. And so we should see them. Finally, we need to fight for them. We need to be part of their liturgy. We need to be those who, not for our own sake, I'm saying this to family members, not because you're frustrated, but because they need God more, you need to be the ones to help them fight. Fight to pray, fight to read. Read to them in bed. 
Get up when they get up and get on your knees when they get on their knees and pray. You need to be with them all the way through. That's how hope and suffering relate. I have one other side of this that I want us to deal with before uh, we end, and it's the relationship between emotion and depression and emotion and truth. This relationship between truth and emotion, which is a big area, I think, for many people who experience depression. People who are in depression, they will say, I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like getting out of bed. I don't feel like talking to God. I don't feel like reading my Bible. They have these feelings, these profound feelings of nothing, these captivating feelings. It makes it very hard for them to do something. They feel like they've been abandoned. They feel in many cases that they've been betrayed. They feel a lack of trust in things around them. And their feelings persuade them. They make decisions based on feelings. But we need to recognize, and again, to all of us, you need to recognize that your feelings are not always accurate or reliable. They're just not. Our feelings lie to us all the time. Jeremiah 17 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So the fact that you're having this feeling does not validate reality. Your feeling and reality are two different things. And so, and not only that, what ends up happening is that Satan enters into this. Many people who describe depression describe it spiritually. They'll say it is like hell, or they felt like they were close to Satan. When you're in depression, your feelings are shaped, and they're shaped by the lies of the devil, that Satan can be very involved in in depression and the kinds of thoughts that come out of depression. This is what 2 Corinthians says. Just listen to this. This is, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, what kinds of strongholds are these? Listen. We demolish arguments and every pretension that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. What is that? He gives this high lofty language like we're in combat and he says that the, the, the dominions that we, the strongholds that we demolish are arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. What he's saying is, is the, the, the false witness, Satan, his goal is to set up lies and false witnesses against the knowledge of God. That he enters in and he tells lies in our life that disrupt our knowledge of God. And, and what Paul's writing here is, is that we, we have a power. The war we wage is against this war. We have divine power to demolish these strongholds. And it says, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. This, man, if you struggle with depression, you need to hear that. Do you see how severe Paul is? I take captive true thoughts. I take them captive and I hold them tight because the enemy is setting up for me false arguments and pretensions that are not true. And when people are in depression, they have feelings and and there's lies that are at work in them that set themselves up against the knowledge of God, like God has abandoned me, 
like my pain is meaningless, like my situation is hopeless, like so no one else can help me. These sorts of things that are prevalent, like there's no reason for me to get out of bed, like nobody needs me anyway, like it might be better off if I were dead. All of these are false arguments that go against, clearly go against the word of God. Throughout the word of God, they go against the word of God. And yet they sow themselves in. We need to take, these, take the truth of God captive. Sometimes Satan introduces lies into our lives, but most often he doesn't do that. Most often Satan shows up and enforces a lie that's already present. And so he enforces lies that are already at work in us in subtle ways. And and this is one of the classic ways that'll happen is we'll say this to ourselves. We'll say, I have good faith. I have good health. My health is good. And then we'll kind of respond with, isn't God good? My marriage is strong. Isn't God good? I got a promotion. Isn't God good? Some of you don't even hear the lie in all of that. My children, my children just got into college. Isn't God good? Well, what happens when you lose your job? Is God still good? What happens when... Your marriage fails. Is God still good? Do you see the lie that we do? We take something good. We take the imperishing eternal faithfulness of God and we make it circumstantial. We attach it right back to the things of this world. So here's something that happens. Isn't God good? Well, even if it happened the other way, if my health is bad, isn't God good? If my children rebel, isn't God good? If all the things in my life were to go the way of Job, isn't God good? Though my flesh be destroyed with my mouth, I will praise God. That's Job. Satan works in these things. He tries to help us measure God's goodness, and that makes our faith circumstantial. Our hope can't be based on a disposition. Here's... here's, how the Holy Spirit enters into this. Your feelings are not supreme. You need to tell yourself that, especially if you deal with depression. Your feelings are not supreme, and they're not right. I grew up, uh, when I was growing up, there was a, a real popular kind of counseling methodology that said, just tell people like, about your feelings. I use it against my wife all the time. Like, you didn't do this, and I say, but this is how I feel. And it's like this impenetrable armor of now you have to like get with it because this is how I feel, right? People will say, you know, tell us about your feelings. And if you're in a counseling session, someone will say this is a feeling. The other person in the counselor will go, no, 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 no. This is how they're feeling. Let's listen to how they're feeling. Well, there's value in that, but I need to let you know you can have bad feelings. At some point, if we said to God, but God, I feel like I'm a good person, he would say, well, you are wrong. (laughs) So our feelings are not always correct. And knowing that, knowing that on your way into depression or while you're in depression saying, this is how I feel, be having the kind of the cognitive understanding of going, maybe this feeling, which feels bona fide, but maybe it is not right may be helpful. Another thing that might be helpful for you is to remember that you have an enemy and that you're likely in the heat of battle when you're in depression. Just to know, 
to know I have an enemy and I'm in the heat of battle. I mean, there's been times when I've been flying and my radios, every radio, can't get my radios to work. I got to get my wingman about 10 feet away from me so we can burn through and talk to each other. Why? Because we're in the heat of battle and we have an enemy. And knowing that makes me stop working on my radio and just say, hey, come in closer so I can talk to you. If we know, if all these things, if it feels like the world is falling on us, and then you can kind of open your eyes and say, my feelings are not necessarily valid, and I, I have an enemy, and I know right now I am in the heat of battle. You might be able to see things, at least begin to approach things from a different perspective. You might have a broader view of what the world is, what's happening around you. And then I'll say this, right theology cares for us. You know, we don't, people say, let's, enough about theology, let's get practical. Theology is practical. If you truly believe that God is good and in him there, he's light and in him there is no darkness and he does not make mistakes and there is no such thing as meaningless suffering, then that will affect your ability to say, God has abandoned me in my suffering. If you're, so often our theology is not right and we take that into a dark place. And finally, I'll say this. Your case is not unique. You're not the only one dealing with this. There's many people who are in dark places and it may be helpful for you to know, like, you're not the only one that this this happens to people. And it happens to people throughout their lives. And it happens to unlikely people. And it surprises people. And for some people, it's a part of their life. For the church, do you enforce the lies or do you speak back to them? You know, it's like we don't just have to listen to our feelings. We can talk back to them too. When, when you see these things, do we as a church enforce these lies? Do we preach a gospel of circumstantial hope? Do we preach a gospel of the prettier you look, the more hope you have? I think our church, I was thinking of our church specifically, we probably need to, we need to become more spiritually open to the language of spiritual warfare. I think... There's a reservation in our body to talk this way and to receive things this way. And I just think we need to allow this door to open. It is a biblical reality that Satan hates God and uses people in the crossfire. And we need to be able to say that and pray that way. You may be, there may be entire avenues of prayer that you are not praying because you're uncomfortable with this idea. And finally, um, we enforce the myth of uniqueness about depression by not talking about it. And for this, I, I ask for your forgiveness. It was not even until I was doing this that I appreciated this, that when we are silent about these things, we tell people who are experiencing them that there's something wrong with them, it's something that's ugly that doesn't, we don't talk about in church. And on that, I am sorry. And as a people, we need to say we're sorry. This is life. The psalmists experienced it. Many Christians have experienced it. Many good and godly Christians 
have experienced this and lived and tried to worship God through it. All right. <clears throat> the sermon series on burdens, we talked about marriage, we talked about addiction, we've talked about depression. I, I hope you will see a theme throughout the sermon series, which is there's really not that much that's unique that we have very similar ways. The ways to respond is humility before the Lord, the willingness to be helpless before the Spirit, and the willingness to rely on the church and for the church to be willing to respond. And I was thinking, uh, in a lot of these passages, they sit right next to writings where Paul talks about running the race. He talks about suffering, and then he talks about running the race. He talks about pain, and he says, but I'm running the race. And all my life, my image of running the race has been a good runner, a healthy runner has been an athlete running a race. And I am convicted that this is, that may be the image Paul has in mind, but it may not be the image that, that is best for us to think of. We are not like Olympic runners that are running a race. We are like special Olympic runners. That's what we are. And we need to see ourselves that way. But we need to see that this, this is, we are physically, spiritually handicapped running a race. You know, I have never cried watching the Olympics I have wept watching Special Olympics because of the, just all that's at work there, that God has instituted the race to express his love and make us do something that we would never thought we could have done on our own. And I pray that whatever your burden is, you can appreciate that.